Praise the Lord. It's a good thing and a blessing and an encouragement to see a full church on a Sunday morning on Christmas Day. And uh, so I'm glad you uh, made it a priority to be here today. Open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, page 1,262. If you're using a Bible provided, 1,262. It's another sign of the breakdown of our society and uh, an understanding of why our society is in the trouble that it is in when we look and see the church in the place that it is in. When on the day where we celebrate Christ's birth, many churches are not open today. And so uh, we must be committed to uh, following what God has for us. And so glad you're here. And many visitors with us, family members who came. So glad you came as well today. There's no better day, is there? Maybe Easter. Maybe Easter's a better day. Good Friday, Easter, Christmas Day to worship the Lord than this. And so um, I'll tell you what. Uh, I, I like Christmas, at least I used to like it, not so much anymore, I don't know, that's my problem, so keep praying for me, uh, but uh, definitely being here has brought me more joy than opening all the gifts this morning, and so it's just a great, it's great to be here, great to sing the songs, and I'm glad you made it here safely, I know it wasn't easy for many of you, came a long way, so praise God for that. Before we read the scripture this morning, let's pray together. Our Father, we're here to celebrate your Son, Jesus Christ. And we want to understand what your word has to say about who he is and what he's done for us. And so we need your Holy Spirit to open our eyes and ears and hearts to receive the truth. I pray if there's anyone who doesn't know Christ the Savior, they would be saved today, that you would give the gift of new birth, no better day, no greater day. Today's the day of salvation, and uh, this day would be a special day. So Lord, we ask for your mercy. We ask for your help. Strengthen my voice. Strengthen us to listen and to hear and to respond according uh, to your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. First Timothy chapter one, we're gonna start in verse 12. I'll read verses 12 through 17. Please follow along. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is God's gracious revelation to us. This is the good news given to us. May we hear it this morning. Our theme is this, Jesus came to save the greatest sinners. Jesus came to save the greatest sinners. Verse 15 tells us this, the cross is the center point of history. The cross is the center point of history. The saying that is trustworthy, the saying that deserves full acceptance is this, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is the center point of the paragraph that Paul writes here. Everything points to it and everything flows from it, but more than that, it is the center point of all of history. All of history points to the cross and all of history flows from the cross. There is no greater or more important statement in all of Scripture. 
Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. So if you believe anything that Paul wrote, if you believe anything in the scripture, believe this. If you believe in God's purpose for Christ's coming, then understand this is why Christmas happened. We celebrate today so that sinners would be saved. This is why Christmas took place. This is why Jesus died on the cross. This is why Jesus lived the sinless life. This is why Jesus rose from the dead. This is why everything that took place in Christ's life took place is that he came to save sinners. So Jesus Christ came to save sinners on Christmas Day. That's what Christmas is about. Christmas points us to the fact that Christ came to save sinners. Did you get it yet, or do I need to say it one more time? <laughs> Jesus Christ came to save sinners on Christmas Day. That's why we're here. And this is the gospel. I mean, this is what we celebrate every Sunday, but we celebrate it no, uh, in a no greater way than this Sunday. And I think my favorite verse in, about Christmas or uh, connected to the Christmas story is Matthew 121, where the angel promised Joseph, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The angel promises it. We see so many instances of angels around Christmas and, and with the announcement. I mean, so many great things are happening. Angels everywhere. It's just a, it's amazing to even comprehend or try to comprehend. But the great news is we call him Jesus because he came to save his people from their sins. And notice it carefully. He will save. He will save. This is not a hypothetical salvation. It's not a theoretical salvation. It's not a possible salvation. It is not a, a salvation that's just presented as if everyone could have rejected it or everyone could have received it. No, this is a, this is a guarantee. This is a promise. He will save his people. Christ Jesus came into the world to not try to save sinners, not hope to save sinners, not wish to save sinners, but to save sinners. He will. It's done. It is guaranteed. And this echoes Jesus' own words in Luke 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He came to seek and to save. So if Christ is seeking you, Christ will save you. He will accomplish his purpose. He will do his work. And we praise God for that promise. That's the center point. As I said, everything in the passage points to it. And everything else in the passage flows from it. This is the good news. This is the gospel on Christmas Day. Now notice that leading up to it and then leading out of it, we understand that Jesus Christ not only saves sinners, he saves the worst of sinners. He saves the worst of sinners. And so the good news just gets better. He didn't come to save the pretty decent sinners. He didn't come to save the not-so-bad sinners. He didn't come to save the people who've committed little white lies and, and little gray things. He, he came to save the worst of sinners. The foremost is what Paul calls himself. He goes, this is a trustworthy saying to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul was the worst of the worst. How do we know that? Well, he says it right in this passage earlier in verse 13. He was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. In, math, in Acts 26, 9 through 11, listen to how he describes himself. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. 
And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. The apostle Paul, who was once named Saul, denied the deity of Jesus. He denied that Jesus was the Messiah. He was such a blasphemer of Jesus that he tried to get Christians to blaspheme. He tried to turn Christians back from Christ. He participated in, most likely, orchestrating the killing of Stephen. More than Stephen, it sounds like here, that many Christians were put to death, and he cast his vote against them. He was involved, specifically involved, maybe leading in many cases, the persecution of Christians. And we know that he was on his way to Damascus to imprison and possibly kill Christians there when Christ got a hold of him. Acts 22, verses 4 through 5. I persecuted this way to the death. The way of Christ, Christians were known as the way. He persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Paul is a man who was zealous. He was a man who was fully committed to his way of life, his religion, his thinking, and in that zeal, he was as opposed to Christ as anyone else you could ever meet. He was a man who participated in the most insulting, violent, and humiliating treatment possible. He was a vile, despicable, hateful opponent of Christianity. You know anybody like that? No, you probably don't. You probably don't know anyone close to the Apostle Paul in his anger and hatred and the way that he persecuted. He put people to death. Have you known someone who has killed Christians for being Christians? Now, you know of people like that, but have you known them personally? Have you met anyone like this? Almost certainly not. And so what this tells us is that despite his condition, what did Paul receive from the Lord Jesus? Paul received mercy. He received mercy. And what that tells us, when we look at what Paul received mercy, we understand that the worst of the worst that we come across, the worst people that we run into, are not as bad as the Apostle Paul in most ways. You might run across a murderer. You might run across someone who hates Christianity. But rarely do you put the two together, and rarely do you have someone so committed to this as their life's goal. This was what Paul was doing full time. And so when you think about all of the worst people in your life, you think about people that you're witnessing to, you think about people that you're sharing Christ with, you think about people in your own family, people you work with, neighbors, understand that Jesus Christ came to save the worst of sinners, the worst of the worst, because he comes to bring mercy for sinners. Now, why did Paul receive mercy? Well, the first reason is found in verse 13, because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. We've seen this before recently in a passage we were going through on Sunday morning. He was ignorant. He didn't understand what he was doing. He didn't understand who Jesus was, yet we understand that ignorance is not a valid excuse before the law. He just, I, I didn't understand what I was doing. I, just, I didn't understand. I didn't see it. I didn't, I didn't get it. Well, that's no excuse. He was still absolutely guilty, and he still deserved all of God's wrath and all of the punishment. 
Notice, though, that this ignorance is specifically an ignorance in unbelief. Why do sinners act the way they do? Why do people reject Christ? Why do people do such terrible things? Because they do not believe. They have ignorance due to unbelief. When you choose to not trust in Jesus Christ, in one sense, that is an ignorance. Paul makes it clear here, but it's a willful ignorance. That's an amazing thing. It's an ignorance that flows out of unbelief. So he didn't believe, and so he acted this way. But notice that this belief in these activities, we saw it in, in um, 20, uh, Acts 26, verse 9, is because he didn't know the Father or the Son. And because of that, he was convinced, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus. He was convinced. When you come across people who are convinced, understand that everyone has a convincing faith. They are convinced for certain reasons. They, they have a reason for why they believe what they believe. And Paul was no different. He was absolutely convinced. In Acts 22, verses 3 through 4, he says this, I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. He was a man zealous for God, and because he was zealous for God, he persecuted Christians. He was convinced because he believed in God. Isn't that strange? Well, that's because he didn't understand who God was. He didn't understand who the God of the Jews was. He didn't understand who Jesus Christ was. And because of that, because he misunderstood God, he misunderstood his son, and because of those things, he was convinced to do the worst of things to the best of people. But God's mercy. But I received mercy. And because of that mercy, what happened? Verse 14. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. God's mercy brought God's grace. An overflow of grace. God's grace brought faith and love. And and this is what we have to see. If you're a believer here today, if you're a Christian, you, you have to see how this works. God's grace is the only reason you believe in Jesus Christ. God's mercy is the only reason you believe or you ever would believe. It is because of God's mercy and grace that sinners are saved. And you say, well, we get that for, for Paul, but, but I'm a pretty good person. I didn't need that much mercy. I didn't need that much grace. Yes, you did. You needed as much mercy and grace as Paul did. And it's only because of God's mercy and grace that you were saved. Notice it carefully here. Your belief didn't bring mercy and grace. So sometimes we get the misunderstood idea in religion or in Christianity that when you believe, then God acts. As if God is just waiting, staring at the, at the edge of heaven, waiting for you to respond, waiting for you to believe, waiting for you to do something, and then he starts pouring things out for you. You have to take the first step. You have to come to him. You have to do all these things. And then you receive mercy and grace. But how can a man who's so absolutely convinced of his religious viewpoint, so adamantly opposed to Christ, so much so that he's putting people to death, how does he have a change of mind? He already has faith. He has a strong faith. He has a determinate faith. How does he all of a sudden shift 180 degrees? How does that work? 
How does anyone have a crisis of faith whereby they are absolutely turned around in every way that the word can describe? It's because it doesn't happen that way. You trust in Jesus because he has poured out his mercy and grace on you. So in one sense, I believe this passage could be telling us that every person is unbelieving. Every, everyone who's not a Christian is unbelieving, and because of that unbelief, they are in many ways ignorant. And therefore, unbelief and ignorance is found in all people who haven't turned to Christ. And so all people like Paul need mercy and grace because of their unbelief and their ignorance. But notice, their ignorance is the, is the outflow of their unbelief. And this is the problem sometimes we run into with witnessing or sharing the faith with others. It's because we start to share the, the, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, begin to share what Christ has done, and then people have all kinds of questions. They have all kinds of problems. They have all kinds of barriers that they're going to throw up. Well, how do you know that Jesus is the only way? Or how do you know that Jesus is God? Or can you even trust the Bible? There's so many errors. I mean, we can go through all of these things. And they start to throw up all these barriers, and you begin to think that the barriers to them trusting in Christ are all of those intellectual things, all of those things that we would say in one sense are, are things of ignorance. So that if we just educated them more, if we just answered all of their questions, if we just explained it, if we just could, could defend the faith better, then all of a sudden we could intellectualize them into faith. But notice their ignorance flows out of unbelief. Because they have rejected Jesus Christ, they now have an ignorance that makes it easier for them to continue to not believe. I'm thinking of an illustration here, but uh, I don't want to offend anybody or upset anybody here. I'm trying to think if I should do it or not. Usually if you're questioning, that's probably a sign not to do it. <laughs> now you really want to know, don't you? My donuts is going to kill you all more. You're like, what was it? All right. No, I won't do it. All right. The idea here is this. If you have a settled belief or you have rejected something, you are totally against something. Um, let's say this. Uh, here's another illustration. Let's say that you totally do not believe in aliens. You do not believe there are aliens anywhere. The only, uh, the only living creatures uh, like us are, are on earth. There are no aliens. Then you have rejected a belief in aliens and because of that, all of the evidence will pile up on what side of the equation for you? Your anti-alien stance. You are opposed. You do not believe. And because you do not believe, then you will take all the evidence and you will, you will shift it. And so it has to take something significant to overcome that belief, especially the longer you believe and the more you argue and the more you go against it. Now, I could, you could apply that idea to, to everything, and I'm going to apply that in, in, a, in a sense religiously. But, but the idea here is, is your unbelief then leads you to read the evidence in a certain way. And so the only way that you can break through that is, is in many ways we think we just, we're going to pile up the evidence, but no, the evidence is read through a lens of unbelief. And so if you've ever tried to argue someone out of their position, you'll notice that they'll take the argument and they'll twist it to fit their position. You're like, wait a second, that was my point. Well, no, then we're going to shift it because, it because the belief trumps knowledge. And it's even far greater when it comes to trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ because the Bible makes it clear in Ephesians chapter 2 and many places else that mankind is dead in sin 
which means they are unable, they do not have the spiritual capacity to believe on their own. You can shift a belief in aliens far easier than you can shift a belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. One thing is impossible without mercy and grace, and the other thing is possible. So the illustration breaks down. But the point is this. We have to understand where belief flows out of. You trust in Jesus because he has poured out his mercy and grace on you. So when you sit here in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you sit here having been born again by the Spirit of God, you sit here singing these songs in great joy, and you say, I can't believe all those ignorant people who just won't believe. I can't believe they're not as intelligent as I am. I can't believe they don't see what I've seen. No, that's not the point. It wasn't your intelligence. It wasn't your ability. It was God's mercy and grace. That's the only reason you're here. That's the only reason you believe. It's true for Paul. If God hadn't stopped Paul in his tracks, Paul would have never trusted in Jesus. Read it for yourself in Acts chapter 9. He was as opposed to Christianity, as adamant in his persecution, as dead set in his beliefs when he got on the road to Damascus as he ever was. So whenever you hear someone preach the idea that because of Stephen's death, he was convicted and he was, God was working on him and he was softening and he was really just in a sensitive spot and all it took was a little push over the edge. I don't find that in scripture whatsoever. God came to him on the road to Damascus and stopped him in his tracks. So what's the application of this? Don't despair in your witnessing. Don't despair. Don't give up just because you don't see movement or softening. Paul's conversion was sudden and unexpected, and that is an understatement. <laughs> it came is out of the blue. So share the gospel, expecting God to work, and don't despair. So that's helpful in us as we think about the people in our lives. But also remember what I said. I'm not telling you not to answer questions. I'm not telling you not to defend the faith. I'm telling you not to trust in those things to convert any single sinner ever. So know the answers, study the Bible, defend the faith, answer the questions, but recognize that every time you answer a question, guess what there will be? As long as there's unbelief, there will continue to be more questions. There will never be an end to the questions. There'll never be an end to the doubt. There'll never be an end to that because you cannot intellectualize. You cannot just give more knowledge into changing people. It doesn't work that way. But Christian, the only reason you love Jesus is because of God's mercy and grace. I said it already. You didn't come to love Jesus on your own. The love you have for him is a gift from God. God, in the past, stopped you in your tracks. He stopped you in his mercy and grace. He caused you to be born again to new life. He gave you faith and love. God saved you. Rejoice. Rejoice and be thankful for God's mercy and grace. We are just trophies of grace, are we not? We're trophies of God's mercy. And we pray for God's mercy in the lives of others. Paul realized that he didn't deserve salvation. He didn't deserve new life. He didn't deserve eternal life. He didn't deserve forgiveness for his sins. He deserved judgment, and so do you. He deserved hell, and so do you. None of us deserve salvation. None of us can earn salvation. And if you're not a Christian, do you realize that? Do you realize that you can't save yourself? Yet, if you trust in Jesus Christ, God's grace will overflow for you just like it did Paul. Trust in Jesus Christ and be born again today. Well, God saves the worst of sinners. And then in verses 16 and 17, God saves sinners for his own glory. 
God saves sinners for his own glory. So why does God save such terrible sinners? I would imagine that there might be someone in your life today that you hope doesn't come to Christ. There might be someone in your life in the past or, or uh, present where you say, I hope they get what they deserve. I hope that they will spend eternity in hell being punished for their sins forever. And we sit here in church going, oh my, no one would ever think such a thing in such a wonderful group of people. Well, I only say these things because uh, I think you're a lot like me. I think you're just like me in so many ways, maybe a little bit better. And so the reason I can say that with such confidence is because those same thoughts have gone through my head many times. Now, I would have to say this. It's not usually about anyone I know personally. Like I said, I don't know the worst of people personally. I spend a lot of time with pretty decent people, as the world might describe it, especially most of my time with you guys. <laughs> so there's that. But the idea is this. There are people that as we think about the terrible things they've done, we are not wanting or wishing or praying for God's mercy. We are praying for God's justice. And it is challenging, especially going through the Psalms, for us to think through how we pray for both things. And I should say, how do we pray for both things at the same time? It's hard to pray for both at the same time uh, in the sense of we pray for one and then maybe pray for the other. But if we think about this, we say, well, why would God save such terrible sinners? And some of us would say, We've seen terrible sinners come to Christ, and we've seen decent people never trust Christ. And we say, well, why is that? Why would God work in such a way where he would break through in such force like he did with the Apostle Paul and save him, and then have other people who, are, who, who don't do the things that Paul did and, and not save them? Well, the passage answers the question, it might not answer it to your full satisfaction. So that's what's great about the Bible is the Bible answers questions, but then when the Bible answers questions, you go, but that doesn't explain everything I want to know. Well, that's because God doesn't have to answer to you, and he doesn't have to answer your questions or give you everything you need to know. But I'm going to give you the answer, the biblical answer. God saves such terrible sinners for his own glory. So notice Paul's second reason for receiving mercy, verse 16. But I receive mercy for this reason. So he's given us why he received mercy, one reason, but now he gives another reason. That in me, as the foremost, as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Because Paul was such a horrible sinner, the foremost, the greatest of sinners, God's mercy is a great display of God's perfect patience for all those who would be saved after Paul. Basically, if God saves a wicked, rotten, horrible sinner like Paul, no one is beyond the reach of his mercy and grace. There is no one that is too wicked for God's mercy. There's no one who can outsin the mercy of God. No one can outsin the grace of God. That's the example. So if God would save such a sinner like Paul, the good news is if you're not a Christian here and you have been a very wicked person, and you recognize how wicked you are, the good news here is that you can know that you're not too sinful for God's mercy. There's no sin that cannot be overcome by God's boundless grace. If God was patient with Paul's sin, he could certainly be patient with your sin. Since God saved Paul, there's no sinner we will ever encounter, including ourselves, that is beyond the reach of God's mercy. 
This is good news. This is important news. This is vital news. There is no sinner we will ever encounter who's beyond the reach of God's mercy. The worst of the worst, the greatest of the great, none of them are beyond God's mercy. Whenever someone says, and maybe you've heard it, I'm too sinful for God to save. You have no idea what I've done. We can say without a shadow of a doubt, without a question, no, you're not too sinful for God's mercy. How do we know that? Are we just guessing? Are we just making it up? No, God saved Paul. It's not saying that you should start off by saying, well, God saved the worst of the worst because he saved me. Because most likely, you are not the worst of the worst. Now, we could have testimony time, and we could bring everyone up here, and we could find out who the worst of us was before Christ. Just share how terrible you were and all the horrible things you've done. And I've heard some of your stories, and, and we get to hear those by God's grace. When people become members, we hear some of the things in the past, but very few of us share all of the terrible things. And the crazy thing is we've forgotten many of the terrible things we've done and don't even think about them. Praise God for that. Amen. And so that's the idea here is that it, it's, it's that someone in here is the worst sinner before they were saved. I'm not sure who it was. And if you want the trophy, I'll be glad to give it to you. But the idea is that as bad as all of us might have been, and you might be the worst, is that no one was as bad as the Apostle Paul probably in this room. And so we're not going to point to ourselves as the trophy of God's grace and say, God saved me, he can save you. That might be something you can do. I'm not saying not to do that. But I'm saying that the main reason in the scripture is point to the Apostle Paul. Take him to Paul, what he says, and say, you are not worse than Paul is the worst of the worst, and God saved him. If you will believe in Jesus Christ, you can have eternal life just as Paul did. And so his conversion gives us hope for the vilest, most wicked, most God-hating, Christianity-hating people in the world. I mean, just think of who that, who, who, who that is that comes to your mind when I say that. God's mercy, God's grace is great enough to save that person. So do you want eternal life this morning? Do you want your sins forgiven? Do you want the punishment that is yours to bear laid on Jesus Christ? Do you want to not spend eternity in hell paying for the wicked deeds that you've done and believe in Jesus Christ? If this morning you're under the conviction of your sin, if you feel the weight of your sin, if you feel unworthy of God's mercy, trust in Jesus Christ. He came to save sinners. He died on the cross for sinners. He rose again to give life to sinners. This is his whole purpose for coming to this earth, taking on a human body, humbling himself and willingly dying on a cross to save sinners. If you will cast yourself on him alone, if you will trust in his payment for your sin alone, look at what he will do for you. Look at what he did for Paul. He will save you. He will give you the gift of eternal life. There's no greater gift. It's worth everything. What will it profit a man if he gain the whole world and yet lose his own soul? So how many of you have not opened gifts this morning? I see some hands, I see some hands. Yeah, I, I floated that as an idea to my kids and it was shot down rather swiftly. And so maybe if, you're, maybe if your kids are older or maybe you're just uh, more firm or you didn't want to get up so early. And so we, we've opened our gifts. And so some of you are still waiting with anticipation for all the wonderful things yet to come. How much longer can I go to just draw out that? <laughs> I also said to my kids on the way and I said, you want a short sermon today? They said, yes. I said, too bad. 
Many disappointments on Christmas Day. Another one here. (laughs) It's actually a true story. But I didn't laugh evilly afterwards. I just kind of chuckled. (laughs) But uh, so some of you haven't opened your gifts, but uh, have you lived long enough? Most of us have. Have you lived long enough to, to, to face what I call anticipation? Yeah, you know, Christmas is just the greatest day, and then you opened all your gifts, and you're like, oh, it just isn't what I thought it would be. But can you imagine, can you imagine getting every gift you've ever thought about wanting? I mean, the things you'd never asked for. Is it, so mom and dad say, what do you want for Christmas? And, and you make your Christmas list, and, and you don't put down everything you want because you know that there's so many things you might want that they would never come close to being able to buy for you. So you, you make it a typically a possible list. So one of the things that my mother-in-law would ask me when I first got married, she said, well, what do you want for Christmas? I said, a Corvette. <laughs> You're going to ask? That's what I want. I don't have one. I've always, always, I don't know if I still want a Corvette, but I used to want a Corvette. I want a Corvette. So uh, on Christmas Day, I opened up a gift, and there it was, a brand-new Corvette. That matchbox Corvette. And every year I would do Christmas with my in-laws, I always get a brand new Corvette. And I'm still not satisfied. <laughs> but can you imagine if, if on Christmas Day you got a Corvette, not just one, but every Corvette you ever wanted? The Corvette Stingray, was it 67, 69, one of those? Can you imagine if you got them matching colors? Can you imagine if you got the house you've always wanted? Maybe the yacht you've always wanted, the biggest yacht. Can you imagine if everything you've ever wanted, you could get this Christmas? I mean, beyond imagination, everything? And if you had it all, everything you've ever wanted, everything you could ever hope to want, it would not be worth your soul. What would it profit a man? What does it profit you if you gain the whole world? Everything. Everything you've ever dreamed of, everything you've imagined, and yet lose your own soul. The gift of eternal life is a gift beyond comprehension. It's a gift beyond measure. It's a gift that will pay, I don't know, it's not the right word. It's a gift that will give you joy, not just now, but for eternity, for eternity, forever and ever. Thousands upon thousands upon hundreds of thousands upon billions of years, forever. This is the gift of eternal life. You could go home those you have, and go and see the tree being empty underneath and having received nothing, then you can have the joy of knowing that your soul is saved, your soul is secure in Jesus Christ, your sins have been forgiven, you have everything that matters. Everything. So maybe that's something you need to do today. If you haven't, you obviously need to, whether you see it or not. And then after just glorying in his own salvation. I mean, is it possible for us to do what the Apostle Paul does here, talk about God's mercy, doubly merciful, God's abundant, overflowing grace, and how God saved him as the worst of sinners? Is it possible to go through through that and, and point that out and talk about that without ending the way Paul ends? Can you talk about your salvation? Can you share the glorious gift of forgiveness? Can you talk about how terrible of a person you've been and all that God has paid for through his son on the cross? Can you talk about all of those things without ending like Paul does in verse 17? To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. 
I mean, can we think about all that God has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ, without breaking out into praise? Immortal, invisible, God only wise. Can we, can we say about how great God has been to us without breaking, without overflowing into worship and praise? This is what Paul does. He's writing and he's talking about his own testimony. He's talking about what God has done for him. And then he just, he just explodes. He, he can't end without doing this. And that's why it's not enough for us to come to church any day of the year, any time, and just hear the preaching of the word. I've talked about this before many times because some of you out there have this mentality. You say, you know, Pastor, I love to hear you preach. In fact, I'd like to hear you preach longer. I was, that's, see that pause? That pause out there for the amen. It's just preach it, right? <laughs> you guys totally missed it. Let me try that again. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> And some would say, you know what, Pastor, you know, all that thing about how long the service goes and everyone being unhappy with how long the service goes, if we just cut back on the singing, you could preach just as long and we could still get out at noon. Yeah, we, I mean, we just sing a couple songs, shorten that, and just let you preach for 45 minutes. We do 15 minutes in 45 minutes. It's still an hour, and we still get to hear all the great preaching, a lot of preaching. That's great because, you know what, I could do without the music. If the preaching of God's word, if the reading and studying of God's word is transforming your heart, that would not be true. You would not be able to listen to a sermon like this without saying, Pastor, we need to sing. We need to respond from our hearts what God is doing. When we reflect on what God has done for us in the gospel, how he saved our souls, we can't help but sing. We cannot keep from singing. We can't keep from singing because if we do, what will happen? The rocks will cry out. The trees will sing. They will burst out in song because when we talk about the mercy of God, the grace of God in our lives, we must let it out. So when we get done and you say, we have to, oh wait, we could go. We don't have to sing a closing song, do we? No, we want to sing a closing song and then we should want to sing another song and another song because we want to respond with praise. That's what Paul teaches us here. He recounts God's mercy, and then he has to sing a praise song. Now it's just a chorus. It's, is it even seven words sung 11 times? What is it? To the king of ages, one, two. Yeah, it's about what, 13, 14. I can't count that fast. And he, he just wants to sing it over and over. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be deep. It doesn't have to be all the theology. It's a song of praise. It's amazing. Only the greatest king, the king of the ages, would do something like this. Only the ever-living, never-dying, no-beginning, and no-ending God would do something like this. Only the God who cannot be seen with sinful eyes would do something like this. This is the only God who is, the only God who can be. Only he would do this. Only he would save sinners. Only he would save the worst of sinners. Only he would send his only son to come and live among those terrible sinners, to be crucified by those terrible sinners, to be abused and rejected by those terrible sinners. Only God would do this. Therefore, Paul gives him praise. To that God be honor and glory forever and ever. To the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. So this Christmas, be amazed at God's generosity. Be astounded at God's ways. Be blown away by God's actions. Give him honor and glory forever and ever. And all God's people say, amen. All God's people say, amen. What do all God's people say? Amen. Amen. So if you're not a Christian, 
trust in Jesus Christ alone, and receive the gift of eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in the best news ever told, the best news ever written, the best news ever proclaimed, the news that we have sung, the news that we've heard read and proclaimed. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. He came to save the worst of sinners. He came to save the worst of sinners for his glory. Lord, every time you save a sinner, it says nothing about how good they are. In fact, so many times it tells how horrible they are. And so, Lord, help us to recognize that in our own lives. Help us to share the gospel indiscriminately with all, even people that we recognize are the worst of the worst, that you might save them by your grace. You might have mercy on their souls. So, Lord, we are crying out to you for the salvation of souls, a soul to be saved in every household in our church this year, a soul to be saved in every household in Owasso this year, a soul to be saved everywhere, hundreds of souls, thousands of souls to be saved for your glory, for your glory, for our good and for your glory. We cry out to you and plead with you to do that. We ask that you would cause us to lift our voices and praise to you as we close in Jesus' name. Amen.